Section 5 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Utility, the End of Knowledge. Bacon. 1. Among the great precursors of a new order of thought, Francis Bacon occupies a unique position. He drew up a definite program for a great renovation of knowledge. He is more clearly conscious than his contemporaries of the necessity of breaking with the past and making a completely new start, and his whole method of thought seems intellectually nearer to us than the speculations of a Bruno or a Campanella. Hence it is easy to understand that he is often regarded, especially in his own country, as more than a precursor, as the first philosopher of the modern age, definitely within its precincts. It is not, indeed, a matter of fundamental importance how we classify these men who stood on the border of two worlds, but it must be recognized that if, in many respects, Bacon is in advance of contemporaries who cannot be dissociated from the Renaissance, in other respects, such as belief in astrology and dreams, he stands on the same ground, and in one essential point, which might almost be taken as the test of mental progress at this period, Bruno and Campanella have outstripped him. For him, Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo worked in vain he obstinately adhered to the old geocentric system. It must also be remembered that the principle which he laid down in his ambitious program for the reform of science, that experiment is the key for discovering the secrets of nature, was not a new revelation. We need not dwell on the fact that he had been anticipated by Roger Bacon, for the ideas of that wonderful thinker had fallen dead in an age which was not ripe for them. But the direct interrogation of nature was already recognized both in practice and in theory in the 16th century. What Bacon did was to insist upon the principle more strongly and explicitly, and to formulate it more precisely. He clarified and explained the progressive ideas which inspired the scientific thought of the last period of the European Renaissance, from which he cannot, I think, be dissociated. But in clearing up and defining these progressive ideas, he made a contribution to the development of human thought which had far-reaching importance and has a special significance for our present subject. In the hopes of a steady increase of knowledge, based on the application of new methods, he had been anticipated by Roger Bacon, and further back by Seneca. But with Francis Bacon, this idea of the augmentation of knowledge has an entirely new value. For Seneca, the exploration of nature was a means of escaping from the sordid miseries of life. For the friar of Oxford, the principal use of increasing knowledge was to prepare for the coming of Antichrist. Francis Bacon sounded the modern note. For him, the end of knowledge is utility. 2. The principle that the proper aim of knowledge is the amelioration of human life, to increase men's happiness and mitigate their sufferings, commodus humanis inservire, was the guiding star of Bacon in all his intellectual labor. He declared the advancement of the happiness of mankind to be the direct purpose of the works he had written or designed. He considered that all his predecessors had gone wrong because they did not apprehend that the finis scientiarum, the real and legitimate goal of the sciences, is the endowment of human life with new inventions and riches, and he made this the test for defining the comparative values of the various branches of knowledge. The true object, therefore, of the investigation of nature is not, as the Greek philosophers held, speculative satisfaction but to establish the reign of man over nature, and this Bacon judged to be attainable, provided new methods of attacking the problems were introduced. Whatever may be thought of his daring act in bringing natural science down from the clouds and assigning to her the function of ministering to the material convenience and comfort of man, we may criticize Bacon for his doctrine that every branch of science should be pursued with a single eye towards practical use.
Mathematics, he thought, should conduct herself as a humble, if necessary, handmaid, without any aspirations of her own. But it is not thus that the great progress in man's command over nature since Bacon's age has been effected. Many of the most valuable and surprising things which science has succeeded in doing for civilization would never have been performed if each branch of knowledge were not guided by its own independent ideal of speculative completeness. Footnote. This was to be well explained by Fontenelle, Préface sur l'utilité des mathématiques in œuvre. End of footnote. But this does not invalidate Bacon's pragmatic principle or diminish the importance of the fact that in laying down the utilitarian view of knowledge, he contributed to the creation of a new mental atmosphere in which the theory of progress was afterwards to develop. 3. Bacon's respect for the ancients and his familiarity with their writings are apparent on almost every page he wrote. Yet it was one of his principal endeavors to shake off the yoke of their authority, which he recognized to be a fatal obstacle to the advancement of science. Truth is not to be sought in the good fortune of any particular conjuncture of time. Its attainment depends on experience, and how limited was theirs. In their age, quote, the knowledge both of time and of the world was confined and meager. They had not a thousand years of history worthy of that name, but mere fables and ancient traditions. They were not acquainted with but a small portion of the regions and countries of the world. In all their systems and scientific speculation, there is hardly one single experiment that has a tendency to assist mankind. Their theories were founded on opinion, and therefore science has remained stationary for the last two thousand years, whereas mechanical arts, which are founded on nature and experience, grow and increase. In this connection, Bacon points out that the word antiquity is misleading, and makes a remark which will frequently recur in writers of the following generations. Antiquitas seculae inventus mundi. What we call antiquity, and are accustomed to revere as such, was the youth of the world. But it is the old age and increasing years of the world, the time in which we are now living, that deserves in truth to be called antiquity. We are really the ancients. The Greeks and Romans were younger than we in respect to the age of the world. And as we look to an old man for greater knowledge of the world than from a young man, so we have good reason to expect far greater things from our own age than from antiquity, because in the meantime the stock of knowledge has been increased by an endless number of observations and experiments. Time is the great discoverer, and truth is the daughter of time, not of authority. Take the three inventions which were unknown to the ancients, printing, gunpowder, and the compass. These, quote, have changed the appearance and state of the whole world, first in literature, then in warfare, and lastly in navigation and innumerable changes have been thence derived, so that no empire, sect, or star appears to have exercised a greater power or influence on human affairs than these mechanical discoveries. Quote. Footnote. Novum Organum 129. We have seen that these three inventions had already been classed together as outstanding by Cardin and Leroy. They also appear in Campanella. Baudin, as we saw, included them in a longer list. End of footnote. It was perhaps the results of navigation and the exploration of unknown lands that impressed Bacon more than all, as they had impressed Baudin. Let me quote one passage. Quote, it may truly be affirmed to the honor of these times, and in a virtuous emulation with antiquity, that this great building of the world had never through lights made in it till the age of us and our fathers. For although they, the ancients, had knowledge of the antipodes, yet that might be by demonstration and not in fact and if by travel it requireth the voyage but of half the earth. But to circle the earth, as the heavenly bodies do, was not done nor enterprised till these later times. 
and therefore these times may justly bear in their word plus ultra in precedence of the ancient non ultra and this proficience in navigation and discoveries may plant also an expectation of the further proficience and augmentation of all sciences because it may seem that they are ordained by god to be coevals that is to meet in one age for so the prophet daniel speaking of the latter times foretelleth plurimi pertransibunt et multiplex eret scientia as if the openness and through passage of the world and the increase of knowledge were appointed to be in the same ages as we see it is already performed in great part the learning of these later times not much giving place to the former two periods or returns of learning the one of the grecians the other of the romans Close quote. in all this we have a definite recognition of the fact that knowledge progresses bacon did not come into close quarters with the history of civilization but he has thrown out some observations which amount to a rough synthesis like bodin he divided history into three periods one the antiquities of the world two the middle part of time which comprised two sections the greek and the roman three modern history which included what we now call the middle ages in this sequence three particular epochs stand out as fertile in science and favorable to progress the greek the roman and our own and scarcely two centuries can with justice be assigned to each the other periods of time are deserts so far as philosophy and science are concerned rome and greece are two exemplar states of the world for arms learning moral virtue policy and laws but even in those two great epochs little progress was made in natural philosophy for in greece moral and political speculation absorbed men's minds in rome meditation and labor were wasted on moral philosophy and the greatest intellects were devoted to civil affairs afterwards in the third period the study of theology was the chief occupation of the western european nations it was actually in the earliest period that the most useful discoveries for the comfort of human life were made so that to say the truth when contemplation and doctrinal science began the discovery of useful works ceased so much for the past history of mankind during which many things conspired to make progress in the subjugation of nature slow fitful and fortuitous what of the future bacon's answer is if the errors of the past are understood and avoided there is every hope of steady progress in the modern age but it might be asked is there not something in the constitution of things which determines epochs of stagnation and vigor some force against which man's understanding and will are impotent is it not true that in the revolutions of ages there are floods and ebbs of the sciences which flourish now and then decline and that when they have reached a certain point they can proceed no further this doctrine of returns or recorsi baudin's conversiones is denounced by bacon as the greatest obstacle to the advancement of knowledge creating as it does diffidence or despair he does not formally refute it but he marshals the reasons for an optimistic view and these reasons supply the disproof the facts on which the fatalistic doctrine of returns is based can be explained without resorting to any mysterious law progress has not been steady or continuous on account of the prejudices and errors which hindered men from setting to work in the right way the difficulties in advancing did not arise from things which are not in our power they were due to the human understanding which wasted time and labor on improper objects Quote, in proportion as the errors which have been committed impeded the past so do they afford reason to hope for the future four but will the new period of advance which bacon expected and strove to secure be of indefinite duration he does not consider the question his view that he lived in the old age of the world implies that he did not anticipate a vast tract of time before the end of mankind's career on earth 
and an orthodox Christian of that time could hardly be expected to predict. The impression we get is that, in his sanguine enthusiasm, he imagined that a prudent interrogation of nature could extort all her secrets in a few generations. As a reformer, he was so engaged in the immediate prospect of results that his imagination did not turn to the possibilities of a remoter future, though these would logically follow from his recognition of the inseparable propriety of time which is ever more and more to disclose truth. He hopes everything from his own age, in which learning has made her third visitation to the world, a period which he is persuaded will far surpass that of Grecian and Roman learning. If he could have revisited England in 1700, and surveyed what science had performed since his death, his hopes might have been more than satisfied. But animated though he was with the progressive spirit, as Leonardo da Vinci had been before him, all that he says of the prospects of an increase of knowledge fails to amount to the theory of progress. He prepares the way, he leads up to it. But his conception of his own time as the old age of humanity excludes the conception of an indefinite advance in the future which is essential if the theory is to have significance and value. And in regard to progress in the past, though he is clearer and more emphatic than Baudin, he hardly adds anything to what Baudin had observed. The novelty of his view lies not in his recognition of the advance of knowledge and its power to advance still further, but in the purpose which he assigned to it. The end of the sciences is their usefulness to the human race. To increase knowledge is to extend the dominion of man over nature, and so to increase his comfort and happiness, so far as these depend on external circumstances. To Plato or Seneca, or to a Christian dreaming of the city of God, this doctrine would seem material and trivial, and its announcement was revolutionary, for it implied that happiness on earth was an end to be pursued for its own sake, and to be secured by cooperation for mankind at large. This idea is an axiom which any general doctrine of progress must presuppose and it forms Bacon's great contribution to the group of ideas which rendered possible the subsequent rise of that doctrine. Finally, we must remember that by Bacon, as by most of his Elizabethan contemporaries, the doctrine of an active intervening providence, the providence of Augustine, was taken as a matter of course, and governed more or less their conceptions of the history of civilization. But, I think, we may say that Bacon, while he formally acknowledged it, did not press it or emphasize it. 5. Bacon illustrated his view of the social importance of science in his sketch of an ideal state, the New Atlantis. He completed only a part of the work, and the fragment was published after his death. Footnote. In 1627, it was composed about 1623. It seems almost certain that he was acquainted with the Christianopolis of Johann Valentin Andrei, 1586-1654, which had appeared in Latin in 1614, and contained a plan for a scientific college to reform the civilized world. Andrei, who was acquainted with both Moore and with Campanella, placed his ideal society in an island which he called Kafar Salama, the name of a village in Palestine. Andrei's work had also a direct influence on the Nova Solima of Samuel Gott, 1648. See the introduction of F. E. Held to his edition of Christianopolis, 1916. In Macaria, another imaginary state of the 17th century, a description of the famous Kingdom of Macaria, 1641, by Hartleb, the pursuit of science is not a feature. End of footnote. It is evident that the predominating interest that moved his imagination was different from that which guided Plato. While Plato aimed at securing a permanent, solid order founded on immutable principles, the design of Bacon was to enable his imaginary community to achieve dominion over nature by progressive discoveries. 
The heads of Plato's city are metaphysicians, who regulate the welfare of the people by abstract doctrines established once for all, while the most important feature in the New Atlantis is the College of Scientific Investigators, who are always discovering new truths which may alter the conditions of life. Here, though only in a restricted field, an idea of progressive improvement, which is the note of the modern age, comes in to modify the idea of a fixed order which exclusively prevailed in ancient speculation. On the other hand, we must not ignore the fact that Bacon's ideal society is established by the same kind of agency as the ideal societies of Plato and Aristotle. It has not developed. It was framed by the wisdom of an original legislator, Solomona. In this it resembles the other imaginary commonwealths of the 16th and 17th centuries. The organization of Moore's Utopia is fixed initially once for all by the lawgiver Utopus. The origin of Campanella's Civitas Solis is not expressly stated, but there can be no doubt that he conceived its institutions as created by the fiat of a single lawgiver. Harrington, in his Oceana, argues with Machiavelli that a commonwealth, to be well turned, must be the work of one man, like a book or a building. What measure of liberty Bacon would have granted to the people of his perfect state we cannot say. His work breaks off before he comes to describe their condition. But we receive the impression that the government he conceived was strictly paternal, though perhaps less rigorous than the theocratic despotism which Campanella, under Plato's influence, set up in the City of the Sun. But even Campanella has this in common with more, and we may be sure that Bacon's conception would have agreed here, that there are no hard and fast lines between the classes, and the welfare and happiness of all the inhabitants is impartially considered, in contrast with Plato's scheme in the laws, where the artisans and manual laborers were an inferior caste, existing less for their own sake than for the sake of the community as a whole. Footnote. This, however, does not apply to the Republic, as is so commonly asserted. See the just criticisms of A. A. Trevor, A History of Greek Economic Thought, Chicago, 1916, 49 sequentes. End of footnote. It may finally be pointed out that these three imaginary commonwealths stand together as a group, marked by a humaner temper than the ancient, and also by another common characteristic which distinguishes them on the one hand from the ideal states of Plato, and on the other from modern sketches of desirable societies. Plato and Aristotle conceive their constructions within the geographical limits of Hellas, either in the past or in the present. Moore, Bacon, and Campanella placed theirs in distant seas, and this remoteness in space helped to create a certain illusion of reality. The modern plan is to project the perfect society into a period of future time. The device of Moore and his successors was suggested by the maritime explorations of the 15th and 16th centuries. The later method was a result of the rise of the idea of progress. 6. A word or two more may be said about the city of the sun. Campanella was as earnest a believer in the interrogation of nature as Bacon, and the place which science and learning hold in his state, although research is not so prominent as in the New Atlantis, and the scientific training of all the citizens are a capital feature. The progress in inventions to which science may look forward is suggested. The men of the City of the Sun, quote, have already discovered the one art which the world seemed to lack, the art of flying, and they expect soon to invent ocular instruments which will enable them to see the invisible stars and auricular instruments for hearing the harmony of the spheres, Close quote. Campanella's view of the present conditions and prospects of knowledge is hardly less sanguine than that of Bacon, and characteristically he confirms his optimism by astrological data. Quote, if you only knew what their astrologers say about the coming age. 
our times they assert have more history in a hundred years than the whole world in four thousand more books have been published in this century than in five thousand years before they dwell on the wonderful inventions of printing of artillery and of the use of the magnet clear signs of the times and also instruments for the assembling of the inhabitants of the world into one fold close quote, and show that these discoveries were conditioned by stellar influences but campanella is not very sure or clear about the future astrology and theology cause him to hesitate like bacon he dreams of a great renovation and sees that the conditions are propitious but his faith is not secure the astronomers of his imaginary state scrutinize the stars to discover whether the world will perish or not and they believe in the oracular saying of jesus that the end will come like a thief in the night therefore they expect a new age and perhaps also the end of the world the new age of knowledge was about to begin campanella bruno and bacon stand as it were on the brink of the dividing stream tendunque manus ripe ulterioris amore end of section five